0: What is population health?
1: Why do some people become sick while others don't? How do we study and what can we do to eliminate health inequities? Sick Individuals, Sick Populations, the new podcast series from the Interdisciplinary Association of Population Health Science covers these topics and much more. Join us.
0: Arisha Martinez Cardoso from the University of Chicago.
1: Michael Esposito from the University of Michigan. I'm Daryl Hudson at Washington University in St. Louis.
0: Twice a month, as we discuss cutting-edge population health research with scholars working across disciplinary boundaries. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Sick Individual Sick Populations, the podcast from the Interdisciplinary Association of Population Health Science. Today's episode is pretty special because it was imagined and organized by members of the IAPHS Student Committee, who were really interested in hearing how folks negotiate their personal identities with their professional aspirations, particularly as they navigate the complexities of the academic and non-academic job market. So I think the motivation for this was really because the shift to working from home has really made it hard to separate the personal from the professional. Navigating a really tense political climate at a time when work cultures and environments are requiring people Particularly those from traditionally underrepresented communities, to bring more of their personal or cultural identities into the workspace. It seems like the idea of finding the right fit for one's professional home is really important. So, to discuss this important topic, we're joined by three guests, uh, Drs. Akila Wise, Alana Inlo, and Alexis Santos Lozado. Akila Wise is a public health researcher and journalist based in Atlanta who covers public health, medicine, and inequity in the US. Alana Inlow is a teaching assistant professor in the Department of Sociology and Criminology at the University of Denver, and Alexis Santos losado is an assistant professor of human development and family studies and demography at Penn State. Thank you all so much for joining us and making the time.
2: Thank you for having us.
0: Um, So to start us off, can each of you tell us a little bit more about your career journeys? Um, What happened behind the scenes to get you to the current professional position that you hold now? And how, if at all, your personal identities played a role in your career journey? And I think we start off by asking this because, you know, we see your titles and where you're all at, but one thing that we've all learned about academia and any job market is that there's always so much behind the scenes that really happens before someone lands their job, right? Like, they have this amazing glossy title, but it's like, There was a whole lot that went behind and how that sausage got made and the messiness that you had to navigate maybe to get that position and figure out that position. So I guess let's start there. How did you get where you're at and how did you figure that out for yourself personally? Um, So Akila, would you like to start us off with that um, kind of your
3: journey?
2: Sure, I'm happy to, you may wanna edit this. I think I may have the messiest journey um, so I'm not sure if you want to start with the messiest, but um, I'm happy to do that.
0: Of course, yeah, go for
2: it. Good to hear it? Here. Yeah. Here so I'm mess. <laughs> <laughs> not that kind of mess. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, so yeah, thank you, Aresia, as well as the rest of the um, IAPHS podcast team. Um, so I'm currently a public health researcher as well as journalist. Um, But in layman's terms, I'm really a freelance uh, journalist who covers health inequities um, in the US around um, structural determinants of health, around reproductive health, and other um, social and structural determinants of health, like schooling, education, and all of that. So the way how I got started um, is with my PhD in public health. So I graduated from University of Michigan um, School of Public Health in 2015. Um, and right after that, I moved to Atlanta for a fellowship at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Um, there, I worked within HIV AIDS as a data analyst on a surveillance team um, that monitored behavioral and clinical factors around HIV for vulnerable populations. Doing that kind of work really made me realize um, that my intuition about research and, my, and the way how I fit Um, in research, um, not only in academia, but in government um, was becoming a conflict. And I realized that it just wasn't a good fit for me as far as um, folks priorities and um, personalities and the sort of work environment I was in at the CDC um, really sort of made me realize that uh, my happiness and my content with the work and the people who I work with was really important. Um, And so that led me to a postdoc that I did at Emory in a sense to make sure that I wasn't really fit for academic research. Um, I was also at the School of Public Health um, in Emory and I did some work around um, folks who are um, injection drug users and how that uh, that population is uh, affected by the environment and their built environment as far as their um, exposure to HIV risk factors. So um, published a few papers and just really realized I liked writing about public health. I was at that point writing about my own research, wanting to blog, Was kind of doing low key blogging. Um, I liked talking to other people about their research never was really competitive um, in that sense of um, that you can sometimes find in academia when you're you know writing and and competing for money and grants. I liked you know approaching research in a way that was different from a lot of my um, academic colleagues. So um, I started writing, I started uh, publishing for lay people and um, applied for a fellowship that I later on got around journalism for subject matter experts that was based in the University of Toronto in Canada. Um, so I actually, you know, once my postdoc ended, I dedicated myself to getting this um, extra training. Um, in addition to doing sort of like freelance stuff on the side, the the program ended right when COVID-19 um, pandemic um, came up. So in, in March, April 2020, and um, essentially during that time, I was just hustling. Um, reaching out to different folks who were looking for public health writers, looking for uh, a person who has a a health equity lens on public health, interviewing different colleagues about stories. And that eventually landed me where I'm at now, in which I'm essentially managing different contracts in which I'm either a research consultant, um, a writer, journalist, or in some other way, I'm doing communications. And I really like this position because it's you know multiple streams of income, um, so there's a certain kind of um, satisfaction in knowing that you've been able to garner these sorts of connections that bring you money and and happiness um, but also that you don't have to rely on one um, you know one entity to provide um, you know uh, funds so um, yeah, that's the long messy way of of how I got to be where I'm at now.
0: Super interesting. I'm sure we're gonna have a lot of questions and follow up. Um and super brave to sort of be like no I'm good like yeah. I'm not gonna do this right. yeah, yeah. Thing. <laughs> yeah. super impressive Akila. Akila and I are friends uh and we we came from the same uh, program so I'm like
2: Aracia knows the background background she knows some of the other stuff that um, I probably won't mention on this podcast that motivated me to yeah so it's so yeah. fun to to see you killing it um,
1: Does that mean that you're the like corporate stooge at that? Yeah, like, you know, you
0: know I sold out. my soul to yeah,
2: the. Not corporate. <laughs> <laughs> no, I haven't sold my. The whole reason I didn't want to do academia, I didn't want to sell my soul. <laughs> fair enough. Yeah.
0: Um. Okay. But to get back, let's see. Um. How about uh, Alana? Do you want to give us your backstory and how you got where you're at
3: now? Yeah. Sure. Uh, can you hear me? Okay. Mm. Hmm. Okay. Um. Yeah, first of all, thank you all for having me and for um, doing this podcast. I think it's a, a really cool um, kind of artistic academic endeavor. Um, yeah, so currently um, I'm in my first year as a teaching assistant professor at University of Denver in the sociology and criminology department. Um, I had a pretty traditional route into academia and Um, into this job, I would say. Um, I became interested in research as an undergrad um, and I was fortunate enough to have professors who were um, willing to allow their undergrad students to work with them um, on their research and things like that. So I was able to do that. And then right after undergrad, I went to grad school at Washington State University where I got my PhD. Um, and there, um, I started out not really knowing what I was doing, <laughs> um, as most of us do, I think. Right. Um, I knew I liked research. I knew I liked, um, learning. And so that's why I continued on. Um, but once I got there, I started to realize that I liked interacting with students and teaching more than I liked uh, research, as important as, it, as research is. And I really enjoyed um, working with undergraduates on their own research projects, um, which I had the opportunity to do a few times um, as a grad student. Um, and so that mentoring aspect um, kind of helped me realize that I wanted to teach Um, focus on teaching. And then um, also throughout grad school, I became involved in several community organizations, um, the community action center in the town I was living in during grad school. And then um, I became involved in some activist organizations, including uh, Democratic Socialists of America. And through that, I, you know, interacted with a lot of different community partners, a lot of different organizations. And I started realizing that, um, Public sociology was also a huge part of what I wanted to end up doing. So when it was time to go on the job market, um, I went on the job market during the pandemic. It was terrible, and you know there wasn't that much out there. Um, but luckily, this job popped up, and it was like the perfect mix between teaching. Um, They really value um, interaction with the community and activist work. I knew I didn't want to be somewhere that um, wouldn't allow me to be an activist and wouldn't allow me to work with the community. And so I was really looking for somewhere that would allow for community interaction. Um, And this job fit that bill perfectly. Um, So yeah, I was lucky enough to get an interview and all that and, and got here. Um, but yeah, I think for the most part, a lot of my journey was pretty traditional in the academic sense from going from like one institution to the other. Um, but I did realize pretty early on that um, pure research just wasn't for me. And I wanted to interact with students in the community um, a little bit more. Yeah
0: also really interesting and, and juicy path that I'm sure we'll talk about more. Um, Alexis, what about you? Tell us your story.
4: Well, I, I figured also I'm a, a little bit of a mess here, so I <laughs> some notes. Uh, uh, so I, I did my, my undergrad education, my master's in Puerto Rico, and I was not uh, taught to do research. Uh, in fact, I, I went to college to be an accountant. And then I didn't like that, so I went and did economics. And when I was doing economics, I really liked data. And particularly in Puerto Rico, because of a lot of the austerity measures they've imposed, uh, they've cut budgets, data analysis, data collection. So I was always trying to see what I could do. Kind of like My hobby was to like download a data set on Saturdays and analyze it. And, uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> when I have really good fun on Saturdays in Puerto Rico, it's either the beach or do data analysis. <laughs> and, uh, and so, you know, I did my master's. And the master's, the way it's crafted, it's not for research purposes. You're taught to be an employee. Mm-hmm. And uh, that really set me back a lot when I moved to San Antonio to my PhD.
2: You know, I ended
4: up doing a PhD in San Antonio in a program uh, that is growing quickly. I, there's a lot of members uh, from UTSA uh, at this association, but you know, it's not the traditional programs you hear about when you're talking about demography. Mm-hmm. And uh, and you know when I say send me back my tr- previous training is because when a, a colleague or a friend of mine read a paper once, I had to read it twice to understand or get the same mm-hmm. amount of knowledge they got. And and here's where things get interesting. I got a great training in San Antonio, and I. And I got a postdoc offer and I was like really happy. And it was in an army base doing data analysis for the army. So, you know, I was kind of like, well, you know, it's not demography, but it pays the bills. And, the, you know, they sell you this idea of a postdoc, but it's but it's more of a statistician job. Mm. And mm. so, you know, they, they, they reeled me in with the idea that I was going to do a postdoc. And I got really good friends there, but it was not truly a postdoc in the sense that I was not getting... lot of mentorship it was more like an eight to five or nine to five job you know if i woke up late i was i would see an email in my gmail saying where are you wow they wanted me in my my chair at the and they wanted me to be in my chair almost sitting i I, I guess i still dread the Mm. day that i saw my my manager of that office standing behind me looking at decoding uh because she wanted to see me how i worked uh kind of a macro (laughs) i don't recommend Uh, that sort of thing. <laughs> All right, so I I, didn't, I I started sending out emails, and I sent out email to Penn State who were looking for a, an applied demographer, and you know just said, are you still looking for somebody? And they said like yes, please apply. Uh, then like two weeks after, they flew me in, they interviewed me, and I came in as a teaching faculty to mm-hmm. start an online program, and with a lot of you know thinking about my background, a lot of friends were saying, don't go there. You don't want to go to Central Pennsylvania. Uh, Amish County and everything else and you know I, they were right but it's been a great place because I had a lot of resources uh, to do great research and three years into my teaching job I felt that I was ready to make the jump I got I had access to resources I had started publishing I, I came out of the PhD without a single publication and I was you know I stayed at nights working I spent weekends so football weekends all the friends were like out at bar crawling and I was have, you know, my hobby, doing data analysis and writing publications, right?
2: And so three years
4: into teaching faculty job, I, I made a jump uh, to the tenure track, and it has been great, but what I've tried to do and how my background has influenced this is I my background is, you know, go out and have coffee with people, not in a transactional way. My coffee meetings are not about I want to get something from you. Let's drink coffee. My coffee meetings are about I want to get to know you and I want to build a connection with somebody who I can ask for advice. And that was the case of many great persons like Stephen Matthews here at Penn State. And you know, and I made the jump, but I still keep those connections from my time in the in the non-tenure track. And you know, and, and I'm still here and I want to keep doing research because of that tingling sensation I had in my undergrad when I wanted data analysis for Puerto Rico. I want to be able to do it and also help people do it sorry if i took more time than allotted for that no it's that's
1: great perfect. oh that's great
4: yeah. kind of a messy path the cb doesn't capture it
0: i mean oh, i think the story is like everybody's path is messy so like mm-hmm. is there any one straight path and i mean maybe that's the big message that we're sort of dispelling today's right. podcast yeah.
1: Yeah, it's rarely that there's a strictly linear trajectory. And even when we are on a relatively linear trajectory, like Alana said, a lot of times it doesn't feel that way when you're on it. Mm -hmm. Um, The uncertainty that we're all going through right now with the pandemic and everything that's going on around the world and in the country. And um, one thing that we've seen for better or worse um, in the academic market recently is a diversity statement requirement. And so this comes up whether or not candidates have anything to do or their research agendas have anything to do with diversity oftentimes they're asked to declare something (laughs) in this very (laughs) ambiguous diversity statement on the uh, search committee right now where we're already thinking about that what what are we looking for in terms of diversity statement so since you all were recently um, dealing with these especially Alana and Alexis um, any tips that you all might have about what you did did you have to write a diversity statement and if you did what did you include in that
3: when i started writing the diversity statement um again i knew that i only wanted to get a job at an academic institution if they were going to um uh like celebrate the activist side of things and the um you know i didn't want to be somewhere that was going to uh Dampen that. So, um, I decided in the diversity statement to be really straightforward and, um, uh, I didn't really hold back and that ended up helping a lot because, um, University of Denver at right now, they're going through a lot of changes. Um, they're, they're, um, they're working really hard on their Diversity, inclusion program and department and uh, uh, things like that. So, I decided to be really straightforward. Um, I talked a lot about um, academia as a white supremacist institution and how, um, you know, it it's not it wasn't built uh, for anyone but white men, and um, and so it's still. Exists that way, and so there's a lot of gatekeeping and and all of that. And as a educator and a mentor and a teacher, I wanted to help break down those barriers from the inside. Um, and the search committee ended up really valuing those statements. Um, and you know, I did debate on whether I was mm. being too forward, um, but I didn't want to sacrifice that um, because as a sociologist, it's really important to me to point out the power structures and the hierarchies and the uh, marginalizations um, and inequalities within academia and with, and outside of academia. But um, yeah, that's what mine looked like, I guess. Um, I also discussed my own kind of, um, existence within academia and grad school and the hardships that I had gone through. I'm non-binary and um, I don't always present the way people expect me to. Um, And so I had gone through a lot of weird circumstances throughout grad school that um, set me back quite a bit um, in terms of my timeline. And made me question whether I wanted to continue within academia. Um, and so I put, I, I created a section within the diversity statement to include that sort of thing um, about kind of my own lived experience. Um, so, yeah.
1: yeah. yeah thanks yeah. for sharing. Yeah, I think it's really important to, to have that disruption from within. Oftentimes um, people get into positions where they could um, make a change and, that quote-unquote boundary work, um, that gatekeeping that you mentioned, becomes an impediment. So people prefer to stick with the the way things are, or they prefer to stick with the networks that they know. So um, that's really important for you coming in, and, and it's great that you're the institution that values that that type of work. Um, Alexis, any any uh, perspectives that you might have to share? Uh,
4: yes, but I actually wanted to say something about comment you just made uh if i can mm-hmm. uh you, you talk about this this like being on this, this this world of academia it is really interesting the way diversity is thought about because you know i'm i'm latino i'm puerto rican and for me it is a little bit frustrating when you come up with ideas to help diversify or where you want to push an idea forward and oftentimes they tell you, or oh, you're still junior faculty, it's like, mm-hmm. you know, like take it easy. There's like, yeah. you, you have to do this later. Right. right? And for mm-hmm. me, it's always frustrating. So to hear Alana say that, you know, that she just said who she was and she put it out there and she was embraced and welcomed in an area, it's, it's kind of refreshing. I, I, you know, because i I got a little bit of pushback in some ideas about, you know, I want to bring some Puerto Rican students to come and bring them here and mentor them for summer research it's like, oh yeah, but you're still doing a faculty publish, write rants, yeah.
2: but, you know, but when am
4: I going to do this? You know, Back to the idea of selling your soul. I haven't sold it, right? But I have to find ways and time to do things as expected. So yeah. while Alana was talking and I was uh, listening, I, also, I pulled up my application package for the job I, I <laughs> have. And I control F diversity.
2: <laughs> and
4: there's not a diversity statement. And yeah. I know we now ask for one yeah. because I've been here three years. But diversity is actually all over my cover letter. Why? Because the research I do encompasses diversity. I study aging among minority populations and health disparities. So, you know, although if I did a control app and look for diversity, I, I, I didn't find that. But I find Hispanics, racial ethnic gaps in health outcomes, racial ethnic, uh, race, ethnicity, and, and self-reported health. And, uh, and socioeconomic diversity and how that affects health. So although I did not write a diversity statement, uh, my cover letter is indeed a testament to the diversity that is included in the research I do. And so, but I do know that we're including, uh, we're considering diversity statements, not only for our uh, uh, colleagues that we want to bring and have a you know, welcoming to our department, but also for our students uh, my department will, will from now on ask students to write a one-page uh, you know, statement and it can be, a, you know, kind of like how diversity broadly encompassed or has guided you into reaching here. And it could be like, did you have opportunities? Other, others didn't. Tell us how that helped you or whether you did not have these opportunities. Uh, so again, I did not write a statement. What I, I know it is going to be a growing uh requirement in the future I, and i like i, I like it it's a, it's a it's pointing in the right direction but if not you know also the cover letter my cover letter at least spoke about diversity in many ways uh, yeah. but i was not i did not have to write a statement
1: yeah yeah i think sometimes it's really tough when you are your work is squarely in that space where you're thinking about racial ethnic health inequities or inequities of any sort you're thinking about social class and other stratification factors. So it's really difficult to pop out of that and write something that's explicitly labeled. This is my diversity statement. Um, I also appreciated what you said earlier about, um, you know, these, for lack of a better word, these kind of gatekeepers that will oftentimes, you know, tell junior faculty to, you know, pipe down, wait till, you know, you've got tenure and then if it's always another thing. So, Once you've written enough papers and grants to get tenure, then it's like, oh, you got to get the full professor. And once you get to become a full professor, then you're like, well, what if I want to go into academic administration? So I have to make sure I don't say anything too controversial um, or what if I want to endow professorship? So there's always something that could that can make you um, have some trepidation about speaking freely. Akilah, anything that you'd like to add?
0: as the writer, you know, I'm sure you've seen these and and have thoughts on people's diversity statements too.
2: Well, I I, I haven't um, seen them. I did apply for an academic position earlier this year with the University of Toronto. And this was a sort of hybrid researcher slash administrator position, but it was solely about diversity and how to diversify their um, school of public health. But In a sense of raising the profile of their research on anti Black racism um, as part of an initiative. So, sort of like what Alexis mentioned, you know, the work that I do and who I am, I guess for lack of better words, is a diversity statement. Um, I take issue with the diversity statement in Mm -hmm. some ways because it's like, you know, for some of us, I don't think it's necessary if you're doing the sort of work like Daryl mentioned. And then maybe for other people who aren't doing that sort of work, then you know, what are they talking about in these diversity statements? And is some of this, you know, performance or just mm-hmm. you know, positioning themselves as this thing that they're not? So um, yeah, you, know, you know, that's just my thoughts to add. But you know, when I do these things where I'm talking about my identity as a black woman, from I guess what many would consider like working class background or low income or whatnot. Um, you know, I do talk about my identity in that way because it is the reason why I got into public health. Um, but I always find myself balancing that act of, you know, you don't. W- I don't want to come off as, um, you know, sometimes you get in these positions where people want to want to see your pain or mm-hmm. writing. You're writing for an award. Many of us from our backgrounds have this thing where you know put your pain on a piece of paper to get this award. I don't, mm-hmm. you know, like to talk about my work in that way, but more so of how my identity empowers this work and how there's Mm -hmm. really no one else who can do this work or no one else is thinking this way, because they don't have my background so Mm -hmm. I mean that's how I like to frame, um, you know, these sorts of things so I haven't done a diversity statement but I find myself speaking about my identity and my work and why I'm doing it, you know, like in, in cover letters and personal statements and things like that and always wondering the what's the other side of the diversity statement I I wonder if any of you have been on search committees and have you know privy to discussions about candidates um person uh diversity statements I'm just curious about that yeah yeah
0: I don't know I've like they've come out so like you know I think the University of California really like made the push where like everybody had to do a diversity statement and like I've seen the rubrics I've read some from like fantastic people who like really think about it and like uh, and then you see these like mayonnaise diversity statements and you're like what is this and I really worry that like it's sort of just become like a checklist right like just you have one and like you took some time but like are you really thinking about your positionality are you really thinking about you know what diversity with the capital D and a lowercase D, I don't know. I I, yeah. I really worry that um, committees aren't trained to really think about them or are they going to sway a hiring decision if you have a trash diversity statement? Like, no. I don't, I don't think so. Like, I think if you're a rock star researcher with a lukewarm diversity statement in many spaces, like you're going to get the job, you know, like I don't think it's changing anyone's minds no. personally, you know, but I haven't, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, Alexis, did you want to add
2: something?
4: Yes, I, I, have been involved in a couple of things here at the department, and for me, it's fascinating and just to see the, the pushes in some directions and not in other directions. But one thing that I mentioned in the last uh, of our, our committee is called the Jedi Council, it's justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion, and then it's Jedi. So they wanted to be the Jedi committees so with the Jedi Council. And so we're talking about how do we get systems in place that like deconstruct what's already been built uh, and help the people thrive in, in academic environments. And you know, my my comment was like, listen, there's scholars who devote their whole lives to understanding the complexities of academia. We're not going to fix it if we don't bring somebody from outside.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
4: Right? So if we truly want to diversify, we need to bring people who know this, who study this, who can tell us, you know, it, like somebody mentioned something at the beginning about the right fit. And I think the right, uh, I, I, I've used that phrase myself, And but somebody has told me that that actually is a blind spot because you already have a right fit in your mind. It's like, <laughs> I think this position mm. will be a right fit for you. And it's like, well, and who else, who wouldn't be a right fit for it then? And so, you know, it's like many persons study these I think at some point universities have actually to put their money towards having somebody, it's not like a police officer at all, but more so a person who tells us, you know, this are the blind spots and this is how we can start fixing a system that has been created over years and years and decades of, of you know, historically of exclusions and other forces that we have no individual control over. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it's... it's a- moving target i think um and i think the more time i spend in academia the more i realize that universities are like the kids in school who want to look over other people's shoulders they're like (laughs) what is the what is the other person in front of me doing um and let me try to copy off of what they're doing and sometimes there's a reticence to bring in someone external whether it's a firm or person um whether it's cost or organizational culture sometimes i feel like um there's an undue burden placed on people who are at the institution to do that type of diversity equity inclusion work i mean that might not be a person's area of expertise they can be doing something that has nothing to do with dei related issues and then they're they have this sort of unstated burden because of their identity status that they're expected to Mm -hmm. pop into all things diversity equity inclusion related um so it's a moving target for sure in, in terms of what I've seen on committees and not just in committees, but just people trying to make sense of the world around us. And the students oftentimes have a, a big voice in, in pushing universities in a the direction. There's also the kind of top down issues from boards, whether it's a board of trustees or regents, wherever the case may be. So it's it's a really complicated story. Um but I want to pivot real quick um, to think about, you know, beyond these these broader perspectives and get some of you all's um, experiences when you are on the market and thinking about, you know, some of that, we've talked about messiness. So that's the word of the day. Mm-hmm. The, the messiness or sometimes the awkwardness that comes up in interviews and in the negotiation process. So Many times people are trying to figure things out like a spousal hire or what to do with their kids or if they're having kids um, moving to a place that could be potentially like Alexis is mentioning in the middle of Pennsylvania. Um, So how how have you all dealt with those things moving into different spaces? Have these issues come up when you're on the market and negotiating or in interviews and we all know there's a certain certain things that people are not supposed to ask at interviews, mm. but they ask them anyway. It happens every time. Um, mm-hmm. So, <laughs> any any uh, perspectives there from anyone?
4: Who goes first?
1: Anyone, you can go.
0: Go ahead, Alexis. Yeah.
4: Uh, I'll say three things. When I when I got my first offer at Penn State, the three year contract, I was so happy. I signed it immediately, although I waited till Monday to send it because I was just simply happy of having a job. And yeah. uh, later on, I found out that there's like these, like you have to negotiate up, you have to ask for moving expenses, you have to ask for this. It's like, I have a job, like I'll show up on the day of the job and that's it, right? I I was I am not trained in the navigating this moving mm-hmm. expenses negotiation. And I think we have to be more honest with people who are applying for jobs. If you have moving expenses, say it. You know, don't wait for the candidate to, to ask for them. Yeah. Um, because I, I did not, like, I, I borrowed money from my mom to buy my ticket to Golden State College. Uh, that is uh, the, yeah. the state of affairs when I moved to, to, to central Pennsylvania. Uh, when I got my second offer, which is the tenure track one, and I'll say this quickly, what I did, I, I did not negotiate spousal hires, uh, nothing at all, but I did want to be sure that I was getting a good offer. So what I did is uh, across, again, as I said, I have copies simply to meet people and know who they are. And what that has allowed me to do is meet fantastic individuals who have already walked the walk. So like I sent an email to somebody, uh, I think Alana, he's a colleague of yours in your department. Uh, His name is Adam Lippert. And I told Adam. uh, Oh, I
2: know Adam. Uh (laughs) Yeah.
4: So I told Adam, Adam, I just got an offer and he got extremely excited. So after he, he lost the excitement, I'm like, okay, can we talk, please? I need to know if this is a good offer. So he was the only person I shared my upward letter with, I think. And, uh, and I also met people. So, he, you know, I asked, like, are these, like, buyouts enough? Are this salary, is this salary enough? Is there anything I'm missing here that I may need down the road? Because he, he's already you know, a couple of years ahead of me, right? And, but I also spoke with a lot of colleagues in sociology, and I was moving away from sociology, where I could, like, go and talk. I think Molly Martin was one person, Stephen mm-hmm. Matthews you know, people who are also members of this association. And, you know, they provide uh, advice in, in many ways. But for me, it was more about being able to have a network to ask people mm-hmm. about it. Because I did not have a, you know, family network. My mom is a nurse. My father is out of the picture. So it's like, I did not have a... a and then in, in my old previous institutions, like University of Puerto Rico, et cetera, I did not have like a, a mentor that had negotiated this. So like I, I branched yeah. out through like professional networks that I've made over a couple of participation conferences and years of being at Penn State and, and meeting these persons so I could so they could help me make a good decision so it's a very complicated um I guess it's, it's all messy <laughs> yeah
1: yeah yeah but I think I, I will underscore what you said there it's critical to have a network and so any student is listening to this um, oftentimes people don't share anything about their offer and salary and not just salary but all the things that will make you successful so I, I always ask candidates that come in on the job market um what do you think will make you successful and a lot of them have never been asked that question before and so it kind of throws them off guard but it gets them to thinking about what is it in terms of teaching buyout was it in terms of research startup funds etc that they need to to fit their mold of success. So I think that's critical is being able to, to talk to people in your network and get a sense of what, and having some diversity in that network too, Um, going back to our other buzzword for today, diversity. Um, I think that it's critical to have the people at multiple levels. So sometimes I think that people have been at one institution for a long, long time that it's been so long and the game has changed so much they they never negotiate. I could, I was surprised mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. some really prominent people that I know couldn't tell me anything about negotiating because mm-hmm. like Alexis just mentioned, they took the first job they got and they just stayed in it forever. So um, those are all really good, good perspectives. Anyone else about um, the market and negotiation, any, any stories that you all have to share there?
2: I don't necessarily have any stories. I, can, I think I can talk a little bit about what I learned from being in academia when it comes to negotiating the sort of work conditions you'll um, encounter. And I'll say that academia made me so sensitive to the relationship between um, like labor and money. Mm-hmm. Um, so being a PhD you know, at University of Michigan Um, you know, getting paid the amount we got paid, you know, in your various fellowships, Um, and then knowing once you're out on the job market, what your skill set, actually, how valuable your skill set is, so for me, you know, I came out with, you know, quantitative analysis skills, qualitative analysis skills, project management, you know, coming out of a PhD, know that you have really, really good skill sets, even though the academic environment sort of lead you to believe that you may not be a valued person by the amount they pay you. So for me, thanks to that and other resources that were at the University of Michigan, mainly the Center for um, Education of Women, CEW, I learned that negotiation was pretty important coming out of the um, academic, um, coming out of your PhD. So that's something I always thought to, you know, negotiate when I can, it can be awkward, but I think it helps to remember that um, these are institutions with a lot of money. And Mm -hmm. (laughs) at at the end of the day, they don't want to go through the interview process again. So if you're at the point where you're negotiating, you know, do what you can to see how much money you can get. What one of my contracts I have now, um, I did that. So I did, you know, how much more money can I get? You know, is there room to bump this up to, you know, this amount? Um, and also knowing the range of the salary, you know, the range of uh, the maximum, and, and, and again, valuing yourself. Um, I think being out of academia for me helped uh, give me perspective on the skill sets I have and to see that really valuable, and I should negotiate, you know, um, when I can, and also, being freelance was another lesson between yeah. labor and and, um, and compensation, and that it's just expected. You know, as a freelance journalist, people are going to try to undercut you, and it's up to you to stand up for yourself and say, "This is where I'm valued." And either they can they can you know rise up to the converse, uh, the rise up to the mantle, or you you know you leave. Um, and I think that's a really good perspective to have. You know, period. Um, and I think it's important for women, I think it's important for Black women um, to have that perspective, because we're so often in, in positions where um, people do find it okay to ask you to do extra things or ask you to you know, to be overworked. So I think really having a strong stance on your value, um, even if you are just freshly coming out of your PhD program um, will help you um, in this process.
0: Yeah, Alana, how about you? Anything that came up that you had to sort of tiptoe? Yeah.
2: I
3: guess um, I should start off with um, I was really privileged in the negotiation process. I don't have kids. I don't have a spouse. I'm white. Like there's all of these privileges that are surrounding me in the negotiation process. Um, but I didn't know what I was doing. My parents aren't academics. Um, I have I had no concept of what academic negotiation looks like. Fortunately, I did do have a really good mentor. My dissertation chair was, um, and still is a huge source of help for me. Um, So she kind of coached me through that process. Um, One thing that like, I didn't initially think of, but I'm really glad I asked for was moving costs because I'm a poor, like I was a poor grad student. I didn't have money to move um and so the moving costs were I mean otherwise I don't know how I would have gotten here like I really don't know how I would have gotten here um so that was a huge part asking for moving costs um and then you know um yeah I didn't have those other extra parts of my life that I had to negotiate for um so I think I was really privileged in a sense um but there were also things that I just didn't even know to ask for. Um, so it is really, really important to talk to people who've been through it before, definitely.
0: Yeah.
4: And, and if I could say something, I think this association through the mentorship program is trying to fill that void, right? Building a, a relation with a mentor that is not necessarily at your own institution, but somebody you can have more informal talks. And that is something I, I've learned. It's like, not only have your dissertation chair or somebody in your department, but always get somebody from elsewhere who could be like a sounding board. And so, you know, these associations are already filling an important gap that some of us have faced by having a mentorship program. I hope students who are participating are doing well.
0: Yeah. And I found like I didn't have a great mentorship structure when I was finishing, but I found that people were really excited to talk about your job offer, right? Like, it's like one of the funnest parts of the job because like oh it's successful you get to like it's stressful but it's like you know people are excited to talk about you know what can you think about and I mean I was really scared to negotiate but I did it anyway and I I was like negotiating trying to negotiate everything to the point where my boss was like okay like this is a good offer but um, I was really worried about my tone, so I would have people like read my email and be like, "Is this okay to send?" And they would sort of word sleuth it for me. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, also the professors in people have very different opinions about that resource, but the professors in has really good like email templates for like how to ask for things as a plug. Um, so I guess, to really get super deep because, you know, we know each other very well now. Um, I'm wondering if you all can think about, you know, hindsight is 2020, 20 and um, do any of you have any regrets or guilt uh, about making decisions that you have um, made about your careers um, and where maybe the personal like came in. And, you know, you made a decision based on like your personal passions or like your pers- personal right and Do you feel any sort of guilt or regret? Or are there any sort of decisions that you're like, that was the right one. Like I made that right move, even though it was a little risky, a little unconventional. Um, So Alexis, how about we start with you?
4: Right, I'll try to be short. Mm -hmm. I have a couple of regrets. um, and I don't know how deep we can go into this, but the first one is, as I said, I, I came in as a teaching faculty and I had extremely unhealthy habits in terms of of finding the time to do research and publishing. So I would spend weekends in my office. I would spend nights in my office. And uh, that now that I have a little bit more free time, I don't know what to do with my free time. Like I Mm. have to go back and look like oh cards and Legos and and listening to music. And because I've lost most of my personal uh, hobbies, uh, I lost them. And it's it's been very difficult to re, rekindle those flames. Uh, so I would say, please have work-life balance. And this is something I'm also doing uh, myself with my students. I don't send emails to them on weekends. If mm. I write an email to them on the weekend, I schedule it to be sent on Monday morning. Mm. Uh, and if they send me an email on the weekend, I am like, what are you doing sending me emails at this time? <laughs> like you should be, right? And I always make, what do you do at the weekend? How? Because I don't want them to do the same mistakes like I did. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the other one, um, it's 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 kind of a complicated thing uh, to to discuss so quickly. But I relied too much on alcohol. Oh
3: and it, yeah. And it
4: was uh, I haven't drank in a year and a half now. Uh, but I I allowed uh, social interactions to be dependent totally on what was available after mm-hmm. I spent hours and hours working at the office, and those were usually bars. So I spent a, a, an absurd amount of time at bars and drinking and to the point it started eroding. Uh, my own academic progress and success, I would meet committee meetings, I would have a lot of problems, uh, you know, they would be like flies that you need to start out. But, you know, at the, at the end of the day, they start accumulating yeah. and people worry and they don't tell you, but they're worried. Mm. <laughs> and so, you know, I made a decision to stop drinking. So I would say, you know, work-life balance and also, uh,
2: responsible drinking,
1: Taking
2: care of yourself, yeah. 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 Thank yeah, you thanks. for sharing that, Alexis. Yeah, thank you. Akila. how about you? I'm sitting here like scribbling down my regret. <laughs> I, I don't have many regrets, um, and I do have one, you know, decision I'm glad i made, but I think the one regret is not um, speaking up earlier and louder about the type of mentorship I was receiving in my PhD program. Um, mm. As a black woman whose parent, neither neither of my parents even graduated college. So I didn't quite, so going into the PhD program, I didn't know what to do. You know, I didn't have the sort of tool set of navigating um, an institution like University of Michigan, um, even though I had, you know, previously I did my master's at UCLA and I did my undergrad at Stanford. I, that still didn't give me the sort of preparation for navigating a system like University of Michigan's PhD um, and knowing about power dynamics and just when something wasn't good, a good mentor or someone wasn't a good mentor. So I do regret not speaking up um, about that because it could have just changed my trajectory, you know, dramatically. So, you know, I don't know. Maybe I would have been an academic if mm. I had gotten a certain type of mentorship, or maybe I would have wound up w- right where I'm at. But um, so it's, a, it's like a baby regret because I'm still happy where I am. Um, but it's been some struggle literally the past five years about you know what was going on with that. Um, and, and of course, the, the best decision I think I've made was to um, step out of academia and trust myself and trust um, the uh, belief I had in myself to create my own path and you know do what makes me um, happy while, you know, paying the bills and fulfilling my passions i'm always always been a writer love writing and so i've i'm pretty um, satisfied, at least for now, in the way i've been able to um, meld that passion with um, my public health training. Cool.
0: Alana, how about you.
2: um yeah so
3: I regret going on the job market during the pandemic now. Um, mm. <laughs> I couldn't really help that but you know, timing just worked out like it did. And, um, but I do regret letting my mental health and physical health slide as much as I did. Um, I really put off caring for myself, um, and focused instead on, I mean, you know, like being on the job market is like a full-time job. So you're doing that, you're finishing your dissertation. I was also teaching Mm -hmm. and all of that took priority over everything else in my life. So, you know, stuff happening back home, stuff happening in my personal relationships, all of that sort of stuff. And then with my own mental health, I wish I would have taken a step back and reconsidered how I was living, really. Um, so that I think if I really would have worked on that part, the health aspect, mental and physical health aspect, um, I think I would have been a lot happier through the whole process. Um, the other thing I have a regret about is during my graduate career, um, you know, you feel like you can't say certain things or do certain things because you're a grad student and you don't want to lose funding or you don't want to get punished somehow. Um, but looking back, I feel like I would have been okay had I spoken up about things um, and I did try to fight against some things but I think I should have done more especially for uh, fighting with and alongside the uh, grad students of color in our department Um, and in our school I you know went to grad school in eastern Washington it's not a great place for people of color Um, and I think I could have done a lot more um and I still would have been fine. I still would have gotten the job. I like nobody would have taken away my funding. I would have been fine. Um, and so I do think, you know, that's a big regret I have is not doing more.
1: Thanks everyone for for sharing. And certainly we could go on for another hour talking about all of this, um, whether it's our personal struggles with thinking about maintaining this mythical work-life balance. Um and what that looks like for each one of us, prioritizing our health and thinking about prioritizing our happiness as well, and knowing that these jobs, is, as wonderful as they are, are not our entire lives. And mm-hmm. so um, it's really difficult to find that balance with something that means so much, but also it's not going to be the thing that's written on your headstone either. So <laughs> um, <laughs> lots of things to think about also in terms of changing the priorities within academia and the research enterprise in general um at all levels from government to um to academia and and what what we should be thinking about in terms of prioritization of health and it's ironic that being within population health at large we're we're having these discussions about health 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 and happiness right Yeah. yeah right um but we really appreciate all of you all for making time and space for us today and sharing your perspective with our our listeners and um, hearing your journeys through the job market and all that. So, this has been really fun for us. And to our listeners who haven't heard already, IAPHS is SAT tier going virtual <laughs> again this year. Um, so, we're sorry that we won't be able to see you all in person, but we're really confident that we will have a great conf- conference nonetheless, and really excited about the lineup of speakers that we have, as well as the theme that, that will be happening. So, thanks for joining us, and we'll catch you all on the next episode.
2: Thanks, all.